You know, each month is known as a lot of things to celebrate. We've got national this and national that. September happens to be everything from National Hispanic Heritage Month to National Yoga Month, but it's also National Preparedness Month, which is about raising awareness about the importance of being ready for a disaster or an emergency that could happen at any time. And that's a lot of what we'll be talking about today. Welcome to Brazos Matters, I'm Jay Sokol. You get to hear today from Stephen Bajun, training manager at Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service, also known as TEKS. Stephen is also part of Texas A&M Task Force One, which is an elite college station-based urban search and rescue team that deploys throughout Texas and well beyond. Stephen, welcome to Brazos Matters. How do you thank you for having me? Of course. Well, to get started, let's talk about your role within TEKS and the task force and how your life even led you to this work. Certainly, so I'm very fortunate. I work in an amazing organization with great people uh, and our job is to respond when it's people's worst day to be that best group of people that can respond to that and get them back to normal as fast as possible. So really neat mission that I get to do there. Uh, I'm the training manager day to day and then I have many, many other hats that I fill, uh, many other duties uh, as, as required, as they like to say. Uh, I started in Houston City Council and Mayor's Office in public transportation planning. Mm. Fortunately, worked my way out of that job. <laughs> yes, fortunate is right. Moved to uh, College Station to work on a master's here at the George Bush School of Government and was fortunate enough to get an internship in Fort Bend County in their Office of Emergency Management. Amazing opportunity, got to really see how the other half works, the, the, the day-to-day work that goes into making a community prepared for disaster. Right. And then uh, fortunately, unfortunately, I went on a tour of this strange little building in South College Station and lo and behold, I worked there 16 years later, almost to the day. Huh. So uh, here I am today working for Texas AM Task Force One and I respond uh, across the entire nation to, to support people as needed and to train those responders that do respond across the nation. Now when you're talking about training the responders, what kinds of things are you making sure they're trained to do? Certainly, so that's what's really neat. On the task force, on Texas AM Task Force, or just the task force, uh, there's about 19 different positions and with that, it's a lot of different types of training. So we've got rescue specialists that need to know how to get to you once we find you, how to do lifting and moving, how to breach through walls and different types of material. We've got tech search specialists and their jobs are to be able to come to a, a pile that's completely undiscernible what it is and using uh, science, art, and some really neat technology, being able to determine there's someone in there in this spot and we can get to them this way. One of everyone's favorite tools and resources is our canines, getting them trained up. Uh, we have got both life find canines and human remains canines that we use quite frequently. They're probably the best tool that we carry on the task force. Right. Um, they're very fast at what they do. They can cover a lot of ground very quickly. Plus, who doesn't like a, a puppy at the end of the day to help with a little bit of critical stress management? Yeah, well, if I remember correctly, for them, it's it's a bit of a game. It like, is. That, yeah. That's what's so neat about it. For, for everyone else, it's a it's a job. For the, the dogs that go out there, it's certainly a game. We literally look for canines that are toy-driven. Yeah. And for them, the scent of whatever it is we've trained them to smell happens to be what gets them their toy. So the more they want a toy, the more... Uh, driven they are to find that scent that gets them their toy. But eventually they need to find a toy. Exactly, yeah. So in we've actually had cases where we didn't find what they were looking for, so we had to put someone knowingly in a pile so that the dog would still get the toy at the end of the day because the, the dog has to get that toy. Just like uh, anyone's got a good lab at home has probably experienced, 
one more throw is all it needs. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. But do I remember correctly that the task force members, and, and I want you to go through some of the other Certainly. positions as well, but the task force members have, not only are they equipped with a variety of tools to have at their disposal, but they really need to be able to accomplish their mission with not many tools whatsoever, right? Absolutely, so what's really unique, and I think the most important to talk about first, is really not just all these different positions, all the cool things they do, and all the different neat equipment that we carry. These are all people who have a day job. The task force is made of people who don't live here, don't work here, this is not their full-time job. They live in literally every corner of the state of Texas, and I do mean that we've got folks from uh, Gainesville, so almost in Oklahoma, depending on how you, the Red River flows that day. Mm. We've got people in Beaumont, El Paso, and all the way down in Brownsville. So from all, all corners of the state of Texas, they come together at a moment's notice to be able to respond when we need to do uh, what we do. And that's really neat. So this is folks who have a day job, they've got family, they've got second, third careers. They leave all of that when a single phone call happens, drive three, four hours, wherever it is in the state of Texas, to either um, Garland or to, sorry, not Garland, to Grand Prairie or to College Station, and then they deploy from there to wherever the need is in the nation of the state of Texas. So tell me about some of the other positions Certainly. and the training real quickly. So some of the other trainings, logistics, communications, uh, plans, our technical, our, excuse me, our, our structural specialists, so these are, these are engineers, structural engineers, who are, are able to assess a building, which we use heavily in Hawaii just last week, and then we also have our, um, our command elements, our safety, our task force leaders, and um, all of those different pieces all come together. That's why it's called a task force. It's all these different specialties and, tas and, and task oriented missions that come together so that when this team of people show up, typically 80 people show up, that they've got everything possible needed to be able to complete a mission. They've got it from, from soup to nuts. And some examples of recent deployments you guys have been called out on? So, so actually just uh, not even two weeks ago, we were in Idalia in Florida, mm -hmm. the, the Cat 4 hurricane that hit northern Florida. And then literally as that team was going out, another team was just coming back from the, the Maui-Hawaii uh, wildland fires. We had a, a number of folks out there for three weeks doing the searches there. And then just before that, we were in some tornadoes in North Texas and, and the Panhandle. So we are a very active team uh, across both the nation and the state. And that's what's so neat is these folks continuously leave home, continuously leave their job to go help others at, when, at the moment of need. And are you deploying with them? Uh, frequently I go as well, yes sir. So when you go, what is your role? <laughs> Again, back to all of their duties as assigned. Uh, the most recently when I went to Hawaii, I was the public information officer for all of FEMA Urban Search and Rescue. That's a big job. It was, it was a tricky animal. Yeah. But well, again, it was neat to be the face of the responders doing the work. So in, in the show open, I, I mentioned that September is National Preparedness Month. And do you have maybe some easy and affordable things that individuals and families can do to sort of be in better shape when something big and bad or maybe just inconvenient happens? Absolutely. The biggest thing I can say for being prepared is just that. Have a plan. Fig figure out what are the threats in your area. It, is tornadoes something you're worried about? Is hurricanes or floods? Have an idea of what those threats are in your area. That will help you have a better idea of how to plan. But some of the simplest things you can do is where are all the documents that you need to, to rebuild? If, if something were to happen, unfortunately, to your house, do you have 
your home insurance information? Or do you even know who your home insurance is with and could you contact them and give them your number? Do you have your car insurance information readily available? S very simple things like that, that you absolutely dismiss uh, 364 days out of the year. That one time you're gonna need that very critical number that blew away, washed away, burned away. You'd be amazed how hard that is when you and all of your neighbors suddenly don't have information to get to get the process going. Some other really simple things, who are your doctors? What prescriptions do you have? Mm. Um, who, what's your contact information? If you lose your phone, do you actually still remember any phone numbers anymore? Surprisingly, rarely is that a thing anymore. Uh, thankfully, it's all saved in my phone, so I don't have to remember numbers. So those key numbers, have them written them down somewhere. So what you're telling me is, don't just take pictures of everything, don't just scan everything because you got it in your phone. If you lose your phone, that's no good. It, it's a good idea, it's, and certainly if you can hold it onto your phone the entire time, but if something were to happen, you lose it, having like a backup. But what I've done is I scan as many things as I can, I email them to myself, so I've got a copy of it somewhere, I've got the pictures on my phone, okay. so it's now in two places. Worst case, I can go to a public computer and I could log in my email and pull up that insurance document or my prescription document and be able to get what I need. Another thing you can do that's pretty simple is get uh, photocopies of all of that, mm -hmm. put it all in a gallon zip Ziploc bag, and now it's waterproof and really easy to grab. Uh, put that by the door, put that by a, a, a backpack that you might keep packed up with some very simple things. So as you leave the house in a hurry, leave the apartment in a hurry, when you grab that, you know you've got your, your medicine, you know you've got all your prescriptions, all your um, insurance documents, you've got all relevant phone numbers you might need to get. And then if you've got pets, you've, you make sure you throw in a can of cat food or something in there, because again, for that first 24 hours, it might be a little little crazy. So we wanna make sure that you and your, your four-legged ones, your two-leggeds and your four-legged uh, house members all are taken care of. Those are good tips. What are some other things that come to mind for you? Some of the simplest things are, if you're gonna be staying here, like for instance, if we lose power or uh, something that rolls through town that we're not expecting, at least let's say another freeze, canned goods are something that are really simple, very cheap to have. You put them in the corner, you forget about them, rotate them once a year. Uh, having some bottled water, either bottled water or just every six months, same time that you're rotating out your your clocks for push them forward, pull them back, mm. spring forward, fall back. And you also should be changing out your batteries and your fire extinguish, your fire alarms, yeah. smoke detectors. Um, that's also a great time to change out a gallon of water. Keep two gallons of water underneath the cabinet. So that way, you, what you want is a gallon of water per person per day. That's a lot to ask, I know, but just a gallon or two, you'd be surprised. When there's a boil water notice, you'll be very happy that you've got that in your hand. So what does, this may be an unfair thing to ask, but what does preparedness look like in the Bajun household? You know, what does your emergency kit look like? So I've got, I went to readiness.gov. It's, it's the FEMA website that's perfect for exactly this month, for preparedness month. They've got a really great thing called uh, Be Prepared, Make a Plan, mm -hmm. and you follow along on their list, and my kit looks exactly like the list they have at ready.gov. I've got my canned food. I've got my can opener, quite important. <laughs> okay, yeah. Very important in the house, in the Bajun household, is we've got our bottles of Tabasco, because no matter what it is, it will always taste delicious if it tastes like Tabasco. There you go. Uh, I've got my bottled water in there. We've got a few prescriptions. As it gets to the end of a prescription, we might put them in there so that way we can hold them. Cat food, dog food, diapers, because we still got some small two-legged ones. Mm. And it's exactly, you go down the list on ready.gov um, and it looks just like that plan. And then every six months when I do my batteries and I do my clocks, I change out my gallons of water and I put new ones in there and it sits right there in our, uh, our staircase. So that way that's our shelter as well. So if we have to shelter in place, we've got it. And then if we've got to run, it's in a nice little uh, Rubbermaid tote. I think I got it for 10 bucks at, at a store of your choice. 
and you can carry it with you and put it in the back of the car and we could go to a shelter if we had to. So not a huge investment? Not at all. If there's $20 invested, I'd be surprised. Huh. And so nothing really nerdy from from you in this uh, emergency kit? Uh, unfortunately, living in a, in a building with uh, millions of dollars worth of technical rescue equipment at the household, I keep it pretty basic. Well, and, and you know, full disclosure, your wife also has a background at Teeks, and so nothing uh, super nerdy in a preparedness sort of way from her either. Su surprisingly not. Two, two first responders in the household, and we keep it pretty basic. We find that the review in the list that Ready.gov has had is pretty much got all the basics that you need. That is amazing. That's interesting. So I imagine you're, you're really good with Texans knowing who you guys are and what you do in terms of the task force, but you'd really prefer to not have them be on the receiving end of your services. Uh, how can they avoid uh, having to use your services? Certainly. So as we like to say, a boring day for us is a good day for Texans yeah. because that means that they're having a good day and that nothing's bad happening. The best thing we can do is be aware if, during hurricane season, make sure that you're, you're keeping your tank over half full because if, if suddenly a storm pops up on us with no notice, that allows folks along the coast to get, get away. And then the folks here, when we get surged, um, to not have to worry about that first couple hours when we need a fuel. Um, being, watching your local weather, what, pick your weather channel, pick your, your local news, whatever that is, but be tracking it when they're saying that rains are coming. Avoid those low-lying areas. The, the, the biggest thing that we do that unfortunately we see so many lives lost is turn around, don't drown. Right. If it's a low-lying area and there's water, just don't. I know it's inconvenient to go a little bit longer to do the drive around, to do the, the, the long way. Believe me, if I don't have to pull you out of a tree, you're gonna be super glad that you went the long route that day. Um, and then just um, paying attention to what's going on around you. If, if it doesn't look right and doesn't feel right, then probably don't go that direction. Yeah. If it looks scary and the trees are all got their teeth hanging out, maybe don't go down that one, go down the road with the, uh, the sunshine. I think that's good advice. If you just tuned in, I'm Jay Sokol. You're listening to Brazos Matters. And my guest is Stephen Bajun, training manager for the Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service. He is also part of the Texas A&M Task Force One Urban Search and Rescue Team. So you mentioned the website ready.gov, and that's a U.S. Department of Homeland Security website. It has a ton of good information about best ways to plan for emergencies, whether you're talking about a household or a business, I think. But the theme of this year's National Preparedness Month, and they have a, a theme, a different theme every year, focuses on preparing older adults, especially ones who are disproportionately impacted by all hazards events. Where does your mind go when you think about preparing older adults for disasters? I'm really interested in this because uh, my wife and I have a couple of older adults in our lives in this community. So what are some things on your mind? Some of the neat resources available for folks that you might know is 211. If there's any reason that you might need additional resources, if you'll call 211 before an event happens, get registered with them so that there's someone that they're tracking, not only does it mean that they'll be able to give you additional resources before an event, but they'll already be kind of expecting you and be ready for you after the event. And also lets us know, hey, we haven't heard from, from uh, Jay's uh, people of interest. Let's go see if we can find them. It allows us in the search and rescue business to be, to be able to go help that. Also some great resources out there is, um, again, very similar to how you prepare for anyone else is make sure you've got your, your doctors, your prescriptions, things of that nature somewhere that are easy to get. So if you do need to leave a house, or if you need to go to a shelter, you've got that, those paperwork with you. Yeah. It's some of the biggest things you can do. And again, um, identifying what are some either constraints that you might have. It might be mobility issues. It might be 
um, comfort issues or there might be some medical supplies or equipment that might need to be needed. What does it take to move those or bring them with you? Or if you didn't have them, what are steps that we can take to, to help those folks that might have additional needs? And, and even being removed from their house is gonna be disproportionately um, inconvenient or worse. So what can we do ahead of time to be able to plan for those types of things? Um, and there's, again, ready.gov has actually got some really neat things to talk about if you're dealing with, um, like if you're taking care of your parents or you're dealing with somebody who's got um, special needs, what are those some things that we can consider so that when we leave our house that we're used to that has everything and it's in perfect condition, how can we continue to be prepared? Um, there's really great resources on there again for both those topics. Yeah, you know, when I think about photos that I've seen, whether it's uh, Texas A&M Task Force One or it's it's any sort of rescue uh, effort, I, the things that come to my mind are older adults who are either in a boat uh, being you know taken to somewhere safer or on a on a responder's back, or it's it's usually an older person. So I mean, this is. This is really something that you guys, I guess, would encounter a fair amount on your deployments. Absolutely, and, and unfortunately, a lot of that is probably folks that we didn't ever need to make contact with yeah. if they had just left before the disaster happened. Um, too many times I hear, well, I'm not leaving. Well, by about day three, strangely, those are the folks who suddenly want to leave. So if, if something's coming and you're getting the notification of an evacuation or a voluntary evacuation, I can't stress enough it's worth the inconvenience to not risk your health or safety and also not to, not to risk the health or safety of the responders who are not gonna have to go and get you. So if, if evacuation's in place, or again, if it doesn't feel right, doesn't look right, remove yourself from that situation. The inconvenience will absolutely be worth your time over uh, the alternatives of, 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 of uh, like a flood or a hurricane and now having to deal or survive through that. I guess that really is a major complication is that People don't want to leave their home, and uh, they wait too long. I, I, that's that has to be something you guys encounter far too frequently. Far too frequently, exactly. Um, is there a a best way to kind of track weather updates um, and just emergency type information? Is 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 there a a way that you guys recommend more than another? Honestly, I've gotten the point where even personally in, in the June household, we just go straight to the National Weather Service okay. and, and read the, the more raw data, if you will, so we can kind of see what's in our area, but then also what the areas around us look like. But the majority of, of weather apps that you can get on your phone, your local uh, news or radio stations all do a really great job. And then fortunately, anyone with a smartphone these days if it's really bad, there's an ability to push out a notification to you yeah. and let you know. But um, I, I wouldn't say there's one preferred over the other as long as it's pretty accurate. Okay. Um, this is uh, sort of veering off into the personal uh, lane here. Your email signature, because we bounced on a couple messages back and forth, your email signature shows your nickname is Wiki. What is that about? It's, it's my call sign. Uh, it goes back to my college days with, uh, as they say, Wiki for the, like the Pedia. I, unfortunately, a, a, a great pool of information, not necessarily deep, but a very broad information. Then when I was deployed the last two times with the Air Force, it only uh, reaffirmed that call sign, unfortunately. so. Wait, you mentioned Air Force. Give me some background on that. So I'm a reserve officer in the United States Air Force. Uh, the A&M spirit, I guess, continued to thrive doing public service in town, 
being a first responder wasn't enough, and I guess I had one free weekend a month I could <laughs> afford to give up, so I'm also a, a captain of the United States Air Force Reserves. I've been deployed twice, and quite excitingly, and very similar to this job, I continue to help people. I'm in air medical evacuation, so when our soldiers, sailors, airmen, or civilians overseas get hurt, it's our job to medically evacuate them back to medical care, take care of them, and get them out of harm's way. Very similar to what I do. I wear a blue uniform with the task force. I wear a green uniform with the Air Force. And in both opportunities, I get to help people. It's a lot of fun. That's a calling. It is. That's what it sounds like. Um, now, you mentioned, you mentioned there are uh, kids in your household? There are. I've got two corgis and two kids. <laughs> and a very active household. How old, how old are your kids? Three and five, and oh, okay. terribly rambunctious. Okay, so I don't know if this is fair to ask about the three-year-old, but maybe the five-year-old. Uh, and I like to ask this question of people I talk to. What do they think you do? Depending on the day of the week, I'm either the, uh, I'm a firefighter boss, and I'm telling my soldier dogs to go help find people. It was my son's last, uh, uh, explanation of what I was doing to his class okay. while I was in Maui with the wildland fires. And then when I go overseas, uh, daddy goes to the desert to help people. And I'd say both of those sum it up quite accurately. That's pretty great. Uh, that's, that's a good uh, bit of street cred to have with your kiddos. <laughs> um, real quickly, can you, uh, and I know we're all over the place here, but can you tell me a little bit about what you saw when you were in Maui? Certainly. And, and what that experience was like? So. Fortunately, I've had the benefit of, of seeing a lot of different types of disasters, lots of different hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, things of that nature. But, and I've even been to wildland fires, the unfortunate fires that happened in Bastrop um, almost a little well, over 10 years ago now, heavens. Yeah. Um, what we saw in Maui was, uh, was surreal. Um, 30, 40 year firefighters saying, this is something I've never seen in my career, something of this magnitude, the, the, the totality of the destruction, that this wasn't a few houses burned down, it wasn't, uh, neighborhood gone. It was an entire community, an entire town that is, isn't anymore. Um, and then knowing that on top of the fact that this community, this sacred location, it, the, knowing the loss of life that was there and, and having to bring that closure to families. Um, very, very heavy topic, but the folks we were with were very proud of the work they were able to do, that we were able to search five and a half square miles, every inch of it, 100% um, coverage and be able to give as best of information as we could at the end of the day. Uh, it was very rewarding to know that while we couldn't unfortunately save anyone this one, we could let families um, move forward the grieving process and help that community get back yeah. to normal. Am I right in saying that the Texas A&M Task Force One are real specialists in that kind of search, that kind of search process and also help train other task forces to do that same thing? Certainly, so uh, unfortunately we've been to all of the major wildland fires that Urban Search and Rescue's gone to, the Bastrop fires, the Camp fires, the Paradise fires, and now the Maui fire. So we've, we've built a, a reputation and an experience pool of people that have seen that type of thing. And then here, very quite fortunately, in our very own backyard at Teeks, we've got Disaster City. If you've ever flown into Easterwood, I always wonder where the smoke comes from. It's right there. We've got our own destroyed town that we train responders from around the world on the lessons that we learn and the lessons they've seen, and then we are able to share those best practices so that the next generation of responders is ready, because while everyone couldn't go to Maui, everyone needs to know how to respond to the next Maui. If people who didn't go to 9-11, we need to be able to train everyone to be prepared for that. So Disaster City is a fantastic facility and fantastic resource, and quite fortunately, it's in our very backyard, so Texas A&M Task Force One gets to train on it almost weekly. 
Yeah, it's an amazing place if, if you've never seen it. There, it seems like almost every scenario imaginable is there, whether it's a train derailment or a parking garage collapse. And, and these things are all modeled after real incidents. All real incidents. So what is the next prop? What's being imagined and hopefully funded um, for growth at Disaster City? So that's, the, that's actually what we're talking about right now. We were just meeting the other day on what's the next prop? How do we expand? What have we seen in the last couple of years that was, that, that's a game changer. We need to incorporate that. Um, and what we're looking probably at is somewhere between what we saw in Maui, that totality of destruction, and at Surfside, where um, being able to say this is what a building looked like before, but when it comes down, where can you find people based off of the movement of floors and the movement of structure? Because we were quite accurately able to say, the way this fell in the video, that person in room one, two, three is in that corner and within feet they could find that person. So that's the next way is going from not just how do I find a person in a pile, but how do I use science to find a person in a pile. I see. And these props aren't uh, cheap to create because they have to be used over and over and over again, but still uh, simulate reality. Absolutely. The investment is a steep one, but the the, the benefit is, is so much more valuable. Um, while unfortunately it's quite expensive to build these because you're talking about building basically a real building that can't, that has to look like it's collapsed but still be safe, but still give all the reality that you'd expect in a collapsed structure. And like you said, be used for decades of numerous classes and, and hundreds of, of not thousands of responders walking over it, working around it, while still being truly safe because the last thing we do in a training scenario is anyone get hurt. And aren't there still occasions when the public can volunteer to participate in an exercise Absolutely. or something like that? So the, we constantly are looking for volunteers at Disaster City. Uh, volunteer, if, if you just Google Teeks Disaster City volunteers, it's very simple to sign up. We send out a, a very simple email. It says, on this date time, we're looking for folks. Sometimes it's in the morning, evening, afternoons, and we're always looking for folks. So folks in the Brazos Valley, absolutely a great way to be able to, to give back your own uh, form of public service and be able to help responders train. And kind of a neat behind the scenes of how do we train and what does a disaster look like, again, while in the safety confines of Disaster City. Yeah, so we have a couple of minutes left. I, I do want to give one more nod to your wife who worked out there when I was at Teeks for a couple of years. And I have to say, and I've talked about her to people uh, over the years, she was, to my knowledge, the best and most talented person at moulage, at creating, at, at simulating these wounds on people that were freakish. They, or th they would turn my stomach, they looked so good. So I don't know how she might use that superpower at home, but I'm telling you, uh, at Halloween time, it has to be fantastic. The Bajun household always has the best makeup when it comes to Halloween or dress-up events but due to her. And she continues to actually give back to the community by volunteering her time, both at, in Disaster City doing the moulage and then the uh, Texas A&M Health Science Center does a, a disaster day where they train all the current nurses, uh, pharmacy techs, and all of the upcoming doctors. And she helps do all the, she actually trains the trainers for how to do the moulage. I 100% believe that. So uh, Stephanie, if you happen to be listening to this, tip of the hat to you because you're the greatest I've ever seen. Is there a website where people can go to learn more about the task force and who you guys are and what you do? Absolutely, so that we're on Facebook, we're on formerly known as Twitter, and then we're also just on the, on the interwebs, uh, texastaskforce1.org or any form of Googling, binging, et cetera, will definitely find you that or Texas Task Force 2 um, to learn more about us, what do we do? 
And then there's also some neat uh, opportunities. There's a foundation, that a uh, nonprofit foundation that supports us, and more importantly, supports our, our members and our canines. Perfect. Stephen Bajun, thank you so much for the talk. Thank really you, enjoyed Jay. it. Likewise. Brazos Matters is a production of Aggieland's Public Radio, 90.9 KAMU-FM, a member of Texas A&M University's Division of Marketing and Communications. Our show is engineered and edited by Matt Diffman. Learn more about us at kamu.tamu.edu.